Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. In 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your favourite centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're going abroad again this week. We're going across the ditch to speak to a good friend of mine, uh, Anaru Dryal, who is uh, the former field director for the New Zealand Labour uh, Community Action Network um, and is now a political organiser for ETU, one of the uh, major trade unions over in uh, New Zealand and Anaru is going to come on today to talk um, a bit about how the Labour Party over in New Zealand introduced electoral or field organising or the field program um, that sort of dates way back to 2014 and sort of hear about Anaru's journey about uh, introducing organising, some of the challenges they had and also some of the successes and how it underpinned the uh, historic election of Jacinda Ardern back in 2017. And we're going to also talk about the upcoming election as well. Originally, it was meant to be a preview of the election, which was meant to be next Saturday, but obviously that's been pushed out because of the restrictions that have been reintroduced after the second outbreak um, or the second wave of uh, coronavirus cases over in New Zealand. So uh, look forward to that episode today with Anaru. I've um, got some mail this week as well. Um, from uh, This one comes from John LeBaptiste who writes, Stephen Donnelly, arrogant, cowardly leftist who tweets and hides. Come out and debate your navel-gazing views properly, you pathetic, insecure twit. So thanks, John, for the feedback. Um, really appreciate that. Um, don't forget to follow us um, on uh, all the different social media platforms. Uh, follow Dunn Street at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And uh, to subscribe to the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, um, or whatever favorite podcast app you use. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating. Um, and leave us a review, a bit like uh, John's review, if you like, or maybe a little bit more positive. I don't mind. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon in lockdown Melbourne. And joining me on the line from Wellington, New Zealand, is the former field director to New Zealand Labor's Community Action Network and currently the political organiser at ETU, one of the unions over there in NZ, Anaru Royal, Kia ora, and welcome to Socially Democratic. Kia ora, tēnā koe e te rangatira, tēnā koutou uh, e whakarongo ana ki tēnei pūrongo. Uh, welcome, welcome Stephen, and just what, that was just a quick little message, um, just to say thanks Chief. And a, a special uh, shout out to everybody who's tuning in today. I knew that you were going to put me to shame when I used literally the only thing I know in Maori, and that was uh, that was I was setting myself up to fail from the get go. But I'm you know I'm okay with that. Um, actually, one of the things that I we'll go into more sort of bit about yourself in a moment. But um, one of the things that I um, when you and I have campaigned together through the years is, and you and I have had long conversations about. Uh, linguistics um, and uh, what was I was surprised to learn from you and correct me if I'm wrong here but there, there are large 
portions of the Maori population that cannot speak their their native tongue. Is that right again? Yeah, it is actually. Um, yeah, the, I think it's about fifteen percent, maybe fifteen percent total Maori population. Less than half of all Maori in New Zealand can speak the language, but in saying that, the Maori language has uh, well, it's, there's been a bit of a renaissance in the last decade or so, and there's been more of an acceptance of the language. You're seeing it and you're hearing it more often uh, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, which is only a good thing. I've, I've been lucky though; I was grew up in uh, Maori immersion education, uh, so I was I learned the language at a very young age. And that's something you've done with uh, your children as well. They're going through that same process of, um, t- tell us a bit about that. How does that, what does that look like? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So um, my daughter, who's 12, Zoe, uh, she goes to a kura kaupapa, which is a uh, Maori medium education uh, school uh, based in our hometown of the Hutt Valley. And all of her education is taught in the Maori language. And so that goes through to primary school all the, and her school goes all the way through to secondary school. And so everything, and this, I think, because at the moment she's in her sort of intermediate years, uh, going 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, uh, they do English every, I think it's once every week for a couple of hours. Uh, and what we've found is that her English has actually improved because she's got that solid foundation of te reo Māori, which is interesting. And there's a whole bunch of research out there which suggests that having more than one language actually um, makes it easier to learn more and more languages. So, yeah, she's enjoying it. She's loving it. Do you uh, speak to – what language do you use in the home? I, well, I'm lazy. I'm absolutely lazy. I try my best to speak it to her as often as I can. She probably knows more than I do now. Uh, but uh, we go back to our – Marae, which is you know our sort of um, what's the English word? Oh my gosh, uh, where we uh, gather as a as a tribe um, in the Waikato region, and so we go back there regularly for for meetings and family reunions and that, and that's a great opportunity to take her back to her roots and find out more about her culture and where she's from. Cool. Um, let's talk about where you're from. Um, as I said in the, in the opening, you're the former field director for New Zealand Labor's uh, Community Action Network, which is the, the, the grassroots organising uh, um, movement within the party. Um, you and I first met, I think in 2000, I was just trying to think about this when I was preparing the questions for this week. In 2014, I think you may have came over to Victoria in the middle of our state election campaign um, with a group I, of... I actually missed that one, but I think the first time you and I met was when you came over here. And it was in 2015, it was a year after, and you came to one of the Labour Party conferences in the metropolis of Palmerston North. Yes. And that's exactly, because I was about to say that, that I don't have a great recollection of you coming over in 2014, but I didn't want to be wrong in case you did. Because I was going to say, my first memory is, yes, in, in sunny Palmerston North uh, in 2015, sitting out the front of a bar, having a couple of drinks and having a chat to you. And that's when I first discovered your interest in in community organising or electoral or field organising and you're sort of lamenting the lack of um, of it in the Labor Party's campaign over in um, NZ um, and you had this sort of desire to start to change that. Can you point to a moment in time when you thought that that was something, when you first sort of encountered this and then realised this was some? why did you, you know, when you realised this was something that was um, vital if New Zealand Labor was to get back into, into government? 
Yeah, sure. So I was lucky straight out of university when I finished my degree in Māori studies and film studies of all things. Uh, I just had, we just had our daughter at the time. I got a job working for my local Labour MP uh, in his electorate office. <clears throat> so I was servicing the community and uh, helping out on his campaign. I managed his campaign in 2014 in a pretty tight race against a, a brand new National Party candidate. The boundaries had changed, I think, at that time as well. It used to be a very safe Labour seat. But I remember very clearly in 2014, and this was at the height of Labour here in New Zealand, uh, when they were the most unpopular Labour Party in history, <laughs> um, where a lot of the efforts, not only locally, but across the country, were focused on uh, waving, waving signs on the side of the street, getting volunteers up very early in the morning at 6.30 a.m. to catch the peak hour traffic to wave signs um, to get those extra toots and so-called votes. Uh, so I think it was at that moment where I thought, <laughs> what needs to be done to ensure that we're actually having conversations with people in our communities uh, around the election? Because there's just no way in hell that we can turn out the vote and encourage people to vote based on standing on the side of the street with a sign. And I know it's rampant um, in some parts of Australia and all over the world, in fact. And that's always been a battle. You talk to any field organiser it's always been a battle um, to ensure that we actually get that balanced rights, but more importantly, focusing on the grassroots organising that actually works. Yeah, it's the, uh, you're right. It is, it, it's common throughout uh, politics, throughout the globe. Uh, I think in the United States, the obsession there is more um, related to yard signs, which doesn't um, make much difference either. But the, uh, the, the experiences that you, that you had in New Zealand, are, I think a lot of field organisers or certainly a lot of um, Labour Party activists listening today will um, share that same frustration that um, we put a lot of uh, time and energy into, into, into work like that. And it's funny, though, there's a lot of candidates that will swear black and blue that at, you know, wobbleboarding or whatever you want to call it, um, roadsides is what they call it in the Northern Territory, um, is, is effective. Yeah, and it's actually become more of a challenge in recent times, especially over here, because we're not able to door knock. I'm sure it's the same in, in Melbourne at the moment. So campaigns are thinking of all sorts of creative ideas to uh, get out there. And that's been one of them that started to, to come back out. It's blowing up my Facebook feed. But anyway, look, at the end of the day, um, in my opinion, it's great to wave a sign, but maybe at a rally. <laughs> yeah. Can rally or an event or social event in that. But there's better use of volunteers' time. Yeah, and that's, I guess that's the crucial point, wasn't it, that we always tried to uh, persuade those that wanted to do that kind of work was that, they're, sure, you can do that, but there's certainly there are other more effective ways in which you can impact on this election um, and talking to your neighbours, talking to voters um, is one of those things. When you, so you've, there you are at 6.30 in the morning standing out in the middle of a road waving a sign and thinking to yourself, um, it's got to, there's got to be another way. How did you... You know, you thought we need to talk to voters. Where did you first look to find out who was doing this in a in a sophisticated campaign way? Well, it was during, like in twenty fourteen. We were doing a mix of uh, wobble boarding, what you call it, over in Australia, and having the direct voter contact conversations. Uh, but it probably would have been after the twenty fourteen election, like I said earlier, when Labor had 
a historic loss. I think it was 23% we had of the, of the party vote, total party vote. It was the worst result in history. And the Labour Party had an internal review on uh, what winning would look like in three years' time. And that 2015 conference in Palmerston North, I remember the main reason why I attended that was because there was a training day for uh, organisers across the country who were interested in campaigning and getting stuck in. And that's where I met you. And I think you might have even run a session for some of us. And I think it was at that point where I realised the importance of the direct voter contact in particular and some of the grassroots organising strategies that needed to be uh, deployed here in New Zealand in the lead up to the 2017 election. Uh, if we were going to overturn that massive, massive loss and result from 2014. So it was there where I started to, I think the passion started to grow in terms of that organizing work. And I was, that's basically all I wanted to do. I was working in an electorate office and doing casework, doing local campaigns, but I really wanted to work on an election campaign. Uh, and at, the, at that time, the Labour Party didn't have any field organizers, any paid roles any paid organising roles. So yeah, so that was the, I think that was the moment where things started to change. And I think actually in 2015, that was when they eventually employed their very first regional organiser in New Zealand, which just happened to be me. And that was only because in the Wellington region, we had a number of Labour Party MPs who actually supported the idea of organising across the region. And they saw the opportunity in the lead up to the upcoming city council elections, which were to be held in 2016. And so I just used that opportunity uh, in 2015 and 2016 to test a whole bunch of techniques and strategies to build a grassroots movement in Wellington. And you and others um, here in New Zealand uh, were very helpful in terms of providing some, just some overseas examples of how that had worked in Australia. Uh, I was lucky enough as well, actually, I forgot, goodness. Uh, after the 2014 election, I went over to the States and did a bit of work for the Democrats for their midterm elections in Illinois. So we did a road trip around Illinois and uh, spent quite a bit of time with local democratic campaigns and just observing some of the work that they did. And it was amazing to see that that's all they focused on mm. was calling and door knocking. And so when I came back from the States, when I had met you and had discussions with you around what was happening in Australia, it became clear that this sort of organising needed to happen within New Zealand Labour. So like um, all good plans, you, um, you, know, you come home and you make a plan and then you go to the party and they say, yeah, sure, it's a great idea. Let's just completely roll it out. Everyone's going to embrace it straight away and uh, let's, uh, let's make this happen. Um, I'm sure that didn't happen. Um, where were the sort of first challenges and um, setbacks, I guess, that you faced in those early days of trying to build the, the, the foundation work to bring in uh, a field program for the campaign? I think initially I was lucky in Wellington because, like I said earlier, we did have broad support across the region for this type of organising. So the MPs were on board. We had some pretty good people in the Labour head office and in some of the um, upcoming Labour city council races in 2016 
and that's where I started to work with uh, a guy called Hayden Munro, who is now the campaign manager for the Labour Party campaign in 2020. And he was running a campaign for a guy by the name of Justin Lester, who was running for mayor in Wellington. And it was, the, it was going to be the very first time a Labour Party candidate had run for mayor in Wellington and must have been about 20 odd years, I think, from memory. And so with the resource of a paid organiser at the time and myself, Hayden and I sort of teamed up and we came up with a plan and credit to his leadership and support of the field program at the time. Uh, but we came up with a plan where we would recruit up to 200 volunteers to go out there and have, I think the goal was about 50,000 50,000 direct voter contacts mm. over the phone or at the door. And um, I remember being at the backbencher bar across the road from Parliament just before we started the campaign and everyone was on board, which isn't normally the, <laughs> the first sort of experience that any field organiser has when they come into this type of role. Um, but I, look, I can't say anything bad about that campaign. Like Everything was there. Um, the work that I did in 2014 in Hutt South, uh, I did say there was a lot of sign waving, but aside from that, we did do a lot of direct voter contact and we did the most in the, in the country. So there was a lot of organising happening there. So the buy-in early and the relationships that I had built in the region was really important, especially in 2015. So I had a whole year to build relationships across the region with MPs, with local labour organisations. Um, we call them LECs here. Uh, the electoral committees and uh, getting them all on side and just once we had that plan in place letting them all know exactly what was going to happen and so I think in a way we prevented that uh, pushback from happening because we uh, we addressed it early mm. so we knew that the relationships were going to be important we knew that constant communication with the local labor teams was going to be important for them to buy into this plan it was a very new plan because traditionally in New Zealand, uh, the Labour Party haven't normally been as organised at local council levels in a branded way. Uh, in the past, we, we've run independent candidates. And I always wondered why. <laughs> as a young person growing up when it came to the city council, I'm not too sure what it's like in Australia, but it was always very difficult to understand which of these independents were actually Labour. And so I was pleased to hear that there was a plan to actually run a Labour-branded candidate in Wellington in 2016. It's a mixed bag, actually, in Australia. Um, but in my home state of Victoria, um, Victorian Labour this year, our local government elections are coming up um, later in um, ne next month in October. Um, and it's the f first time I feel there's been a um, resource shift from head office into supporting uh, Labor Party endorsed candidates. There's still plenty of people that are running across the city uh, and across the state that are Labor people, um, but are running as independents. And I think they're making that choice because maybe the Labor vote traditionally there isn't that strong and that may hurt, hinder their chances of getting elected. But certainly in areas where the Labor primary vote is strong at a state or a federal election level, um, that we're running fully endorsed Labor candidates. And I think that's a really good thing that Labor uh, is doing for, for many reasons, not just about candidate development, but also building that grassroots network of both candidates and activists 
because the more elections you have, the more opportunities you have to train and skill up your people. Um, yep. um, purely from a campaign perspective, obviously there's a lot of good things about in terms of government. Um, but from a campaign perspective, um, it's a good opportunity to continue to develop that um, that pipeline of activists and candidates. Um, getting back to the Wellington mayoral campaign, and in the end, it was a successful campaign. Did you feel that um, that all eyes uh, from outside Wellington were watching that race, in particular, because that? you were trying something, you're adding something new to the way that the campaign was being conducted? And did you feel any pressure? Uh, no, I didn't feel the pressure at the time because it was a new thing for everyone. And we just knew what we needed to do. Like we just stuck to our plan all the way through. It was a high profile race across the country because Justin Lester, our Labour candidate, was running against a former Labour Party member um, who decided to um, cancel run against them and so and he ended up wanting to become a national party uh candidate after that election campaign and he lost anyway so but but that was that was probably the main reason why it was a high profile race uh you know i didn't feel the pressure i just wanted to make sure that we hit our targets and more importantly using it as an opportunity to develop leaders coming through we had never ever to my knowledge organized a campaign like the one we did with justin lester at that scale in any other local body, local council elections um, in the past, that was Labour branded. And um, I think at the same time, we also managed to prove that it could it could work. It, it, it worked and um, he, he, he won quite easily in the end. And he then became the sort of poster boy uh, uh, around the rest of the country within the Labour Party to encourage others to do the same. And we just had our city council elections again last year. And again, we had more Labour Party branded candidates who got up using those strategies that we um, employed in 2016. One of them was a young 26-year-old uh, candidate, Labour candidate in my hometown of the Hutt Valley who overturned an 18,000 majority. His name's Campbell Barry. And he basically just focused his whole campaign on grassroots organizing and direct voter contact and building a solid crew of volunteers um, to help him along the way. And that, in that particular campaign, it, I think it was 50 years since the last Labour candidate had actually won the mayoralty in Lower Hutt. So those, uh, the main thing is, is just getting those wins on the board mm. and having, having those wins on the board so you can point to success stories and share to others why it's important and how effective it was um, to deploy those sorts of strategies. Well, I'm glad uh, you weren't nervous because I know that certainly my experience in going into the 2014 uh, state election campaign when we really kind of put all of our, not all of our chips, but we certainly invested heavily into the field program for the first time. And a lot of uh, my uh, interstate colleagues that were working in their various party offices were popping down to Victoria to just sort of check out what was going on. And election night, I was thinking, fuck, if we don't win. <laughs> My first attempt at bringing in community or electoral organising uh, could be very short-lived. Don't get me wrong, I had a number of uh, nightmares in the lead-up to that particular election campaign because I knew that we just needed to get a win and uh, build that success story to ensure that we could actually get it out to the rest of the country and encourage others to use it. 
Let's turn to the, the rest of the country then, because at the time after um, the victory in the Wellington mayoral campaign, the, the leader of the party at that point was an, the leader of the national, sorry, I've got to be careful because the word of national, the leader of the Labor Party at a national level was Andrew Little. Um, and he uh, eventually stepped aside very close to the election, in the election year from memory in 2017, to enable uh, Jacinda Ardern to take on the role as leader take going into the, uh, the election campaign. Before Jacinda was leader, though, the party had, at a national level, adopted a strategy that involved uh, a field program. Is that correct? Uh, before Jacinda, did you say? Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yep. So uh, after the 2016 city council elections, uh, the party employed me to become the field director for the nationwide campaign. Andrew Little at the time was still the leader. And during the quiet uh, Christmas New Year uh, period, we formulated a, an, an ambitious plan to roll out a nationwide field program. And that was under Andrew's leadership at the time. And so we, so I was employed as a field director and we employed four field organisers uh, covering one in Christchurch, one in Wellington, and two in Auckland, uh, mostly focusing on South Auckland. And I'll talk about the importance of South Auckland later on. But um, that was the start of our field program on pretty limited resources, not much money. Um, but during that period before Jacinda became leader, the work that we did, and we employed a uh, phased approach, so we spent a lot of time early that year recruiting volunteers who turned out to be reliable volunteer leaders by the time that Jacinda Ardern became uh, the leader of the Labour Party. And that helped big time once we got that massive surge of volunteers signing up to get involved in the campaign. So again, the field programme, back in 2017, the work that our organisers did in those key areas to build our teams uh, help big time. Otherwise, we would have really struggled to manage the thousands of volunteer signups that came in, and mostly they were in our main centres of Christchurch, Wellington, and Auckland. So Jacinda becomes the leader, and is there a? I mean, describe the shift in momentum from a campaign standpoint for Labor when she uh, she um, takes over the reins. Uh, she was always Jacinda within the Labor Party. Jacinda was always talked about as a future leader. Even in 2017, before she became leader, there was still talk, there was still talk about her being the leader and, her, and, and because Andrew Little was struggling in the polls, there was an appetite for her to become leader anyway. But when it happened, uh, I think there was a sudden change, an immediate change. Um, as soon as it happened, people became more energized. We actually did struggle. Our organizers struggled to get volunteers into the campaign before she became the leader. There were no issues after that. Uh, the party then organized a series of campaign rallies across the country, and this had not been seen in New Zealand in a very, very long time, political rallies that were packed to the rafters. I remember when the Labour Party held their campaign launch at the Auckland Town Hall, and it was completely full. There were lines all the way down Queen Street and people who couldn't fit into the town hall uh, were congregating outside in the Altair Square, waiting for Jacinda to come out and um, address them. 
And that I think at that moment, personally, I, I knew that that was a, a changing point in the election. It's funny, you know, as, you, as you're just talking about that, I just, I've just thought to myself then, uh, I, I don't think when, certainly the, in the Australian context at a federal level, when the party or the caucus or whoever is in power to decide who our leader is, that they don't, I don't think they've ever factored in um, the appeal that they will, would have in, in energising the base. That is a sentence that you hear over and over again in US politics. A lot of people think that that is related to turnout because it's a, in the United States, as in New Zealand, it's a turnout-style election. Um, but you also need to turn out volunteers to go and have conversations with voters, and a leader can play a critical role in that work. Daniel, Daniel Andrews is, is a great example of that here in Victoria. When Daniel attends a local campaign event for the Community Action Network, hundreds of people come to that event. And hundreds is great, you know. Um, when we have the can rally, which is normally sort of the Sunday before the election, you know, thousand we get over a thousand people come to that. That is great. Um, that those moments are important in uh, organising and mobilising and deploying your volunteer resources. When you have someone at the top of your ticket, to coin another US idiom, um, who isn't energising that the the supporter base does not give a stuff about it's going to be so much harder for you to mobilize your volunteers. And if we are going to continue to go down a path where we have uh, field organizing as a part of our broad strategy, therefore mobilizing volunteers as a part of our broad strategy, we need to start to factor in, does this leader, and I'm not being critical of Albo or Bill or any other leaders that we've had in the past, but looking to the future, we have to ask ourselves, does this leader energize our supporter base to want to come out and have conversations hard conversations with their neighbors either on the phone or on the doors jacinda definitely ticks that box in ways you've just explained perfectly then yeah so in 2017 there must have been a couple of weeks out from election day i clearly remember her coming along to one of our phone banks in wellington and i was campaigning up in south auckland at the time but they did have a live stream going i think yeah and when I spoke to my organiser afterwards to do a debrief, she said that there would have been, and this was a very small office, you've been there before, our Labour Party office in the Wellington, and there would have been 100 volunteers crammed into that very small office where you could probably only really fit about 50 on a good day. Mm. And many of them were sitting on the floor because they turned up because they knew that Jacinda was going to be there. So the draw card was, was there, it helped big time. And so... She got on the phones and she sat alongside our volunteers. And that makes a huge difference when you're trying to mobilize volunteers and get them excited to get involved in an election campaign. And when you have a candidate like Jacinda, then it's just gold. Uh, so there was, there was that. And then outside of that, at every campaign rally, the message was really simple. She mentioned the importance of having conversations at the door and over the phone and to sign up and get involved by having those conversations. So when the messaging is coming from the top, from your leader, around the importance of having those conversations with people in your community, then it just makes it just makes our job much easier as field organisers because you talked about the pushback um, and issues around getting buy-in um, before. It helps when the leader at the top saying that because you can't argue with them, especially when it's somebody like Jacinda Ardern, who obviously, as we all know, shot up in the polls and um, the rest is history. 
it's uh, music to my ears to hear a candidate that, that uh, is like that, that it, you know, really uh, endorses, uh, or essentially does a, a good field pitch, basically. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, I, I had the, um, the honour and pleasure of coming over uh, on uh, election day and uh, hitting the hustings and going out and getting out the vote in South Auckland. Um, my time in New Zealand had pretty much been limited to, to Wellington. I'd, I'd not really been to Auckland before, much before. Um, and it was, uh, I was down there door knocking with, I think Eric Goddard it might have been. Anyway, um, it was a great, great afternoon. I loved it. Um, the amount of uh, large sort of uh, Maori and South Pacifica community in that part of South Auckland, um, the amount of families that wanted to invite me in for a feed uh, <laughs> that day uh, was, uh, if I'd done that, one, I wouldn't have knocked many doors and two, I would have been 10 pounds heavier by the end of the day. Um, but a great experience. Um, I never really got a chance to, you're flat out that day and I didn't really get a chance to sort of pick your brain and say, hey, how are you feeling? But if you can recall your thoughts about going into election night and the count, how were you feeling that afternoon um, about Labor's prospects? Yeah, I mean, the, the feedback we were getting on the day from the volunteers who were having those conversations at the door was positive throughout the, the day, especially in South Auckland. We were targeting South Auckland quite heavily just to increase the voter turnout there because, like you say, there are there is a large Māori and Pacifica community in the South Auckland uh, seats. And, um, yeah, the way I was feeling was... 50-50, mate. Like, I, I had no idea what way it was going. Um, it was really tight. The polls in the days leading up to the election were topsy-turvy. They were up and down. They were all over the place. It, I think it did become clear, though, that Winston Peters, the leader of New Zealand First, um, he would be the kingmaker. So it was all down to whether Labour would actually have enough to be in a position to form a government or not and national were sort of sliding downwards a little bit so yeah I was a nervous wreck <laughs> coming into election night and waiting for those results to come through I couldn't keep still um, but I felt like on that night looking back at the campaign I felt like we had done everything that we could have done as part of our field program and our field campaign and I think that's probably the other piece of advice for any other field organizers out there is when you get to election night, you want to know for sure, when you look back at the campaign, and you have to ask that question of yourself, have I done everything possible um, to ensure that we're in a position that we might win? Hmm. I think sometimes complacency creeps in. So as long as you feel like you don't have any regrets um, about about the work that you've done over those last few months, then well, the rest is just up to what the voters say on the night particularly in those close contests where you may in the end lose by five or six votes and you know that you've left something on the field. That's right. and Or in the sheds rather. Yeah, and as it happened when the results came through, Labor would have been, um, when we look back at the results and the work that we did in the field and the com number of conversations we had with um, certain target voters across the country, it turned out that our field program attributed uh, to, I think, an extra 1% of the party vote, the Labour Party vote, which basically put them in a position to um, form a government. So they got 37% of the vote, I think, and if they, had, if they didn't receive that 1% extra, they wouldn't have been in a position to 
former government in the Greens. It's a, um, we're going to start to talk more about uh, 2020 now. Um, and a good sort of segue question is when you start to map out your strategy and where you deploy your field resources, the challenge in New Zealand is that because you're a unicameral parliament and that you have uh, electorates, but also then you have the party, you have the list. So the electorate is the entire two islands of New Zealand. How do you work out where you deploy? If you've got 10 field organisers, how do you work out where you put them? Yeah, it was a tricky one. And we were, we were still learning as well because the, the field program was still very new to us. And we're working and organising in an MMP environment where voters have two votes, one for their local candidate and the other, which is the more important vote, was for the part, is for the party. And so in a way, it's not as simple when it comes down to targeting particular areas or organising resources. Uh, so in Australia, for example, you can target particular swing seats uh, but in New Zealand, it's very difficult. So we had to weigh up uh, which areas we would focus on, I suppose, in terms of density, number one, because a lot of the votes are simply in those major centres, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. And number two, where were the areas where we needed to focus more on persuading voters to vote for us? And where were the other areas where we actually needed to uh, turn out the vote? And we already talked about South Auckland before, and that was certainly a target area for us in terms of getting out the vote in the final two weeks. And we're just touching on Auckland. Uh, persuasion probably in sort of central Auckland was really important for us uh, and some parts of Wellington and Christchurch. But, um, but more importantly, at that early stage when the field program was still very new, there were discussions around targeting those main centres, but also making sure that where we put our field organisers, uh, they were actually going to be well supported at the same time. So we knew in Wellington, because we'd done this before, we had already built a strong culture of organising there. We knew also in Christchurch where they were, they didn't quite have a paid organiser in the city council elections in the lead up to the general election, but they did have a really strong organising culture there. So we knew that that would be a really good place to, to put an organiser. And Auckland were still sort of working on building their grassroots organising and direct voter contact organising, uh, particularly in, in South Auckland. So we knew that was going to be a massive opportunity to keep growing and looking at opportunities to grow our field programme past 2017. So those were probably the reasons uh, on why we, we put our field organisers in those particular areas. And... Uh, Look, look, hopefully in the in the future we can have more organisers outside of those main centres and I know in the last three years we actually have uh, appointed organisers into areas such as Palmerston North. <laughs> um, 2020, before COVID came on the scene, um, how, were, how were you feeling going into an election year at the start of 2020? Well, yeah, I mean... Before COVID hit, there was a poll, I think, in February. Yep, in February, late, in mid-February, where Labour were on 42% and National were on 38%. New Zealand First were on 6 Now, of course, with MMP, the minor parties, they either need to get over 5% to get into Parliament or they need to win an electorate um, to get in. 
and New Zealand First don't hold an electorate, so they them and the Greens have to poll over five percent to get into the New Zealand Parliament. The Greens were polling at nine percent at that time, and the ACT Party, which is a a right libertarian party, uh, they currently have one MP in Parliament because he wins an electorate all the time, the electorate of Epsom in Auckland. They were on three percent. So that so that it was shaping up to be a very tight race before COVID hit. National had a guy called Simon Bridges as leader, who wasn't really resonating with the public, but the public still seemed to trust the National Party to manage an economy. And um, they'd just come off the back of John Key for nine years and Bill English for uh, for a year. So they, they sort of trusted, it seemed to me, that they, there was still a lot of trust towards National at that point in time. So I think, yeah, before COVID, it was shaping up to be a very tight election. But as the last few months um, have gone by and looking at the polling, uh, I think with the way Jacinda Ardern and the Labour government have handled the COVID crisis here in New Zealand, things have dramatically changed. From a campaign standpoint, how have uh, how has the party adjusted to the, the the this sort of this new norm that is living in a COVID era with restrictions put in place? How have you, particularly you know direct voter contact is built upon the idea that you actually directly talk to someone either on the telephone or face to face? What strategies have you guys adopted without giving away the game to our if any opponents listen to this podcast? Uh, what what strategies have you uh, adopted to adjust to this this challenge? Yeah, well, uh, just talking to field, New Zealand Labor Field Director Lucy Northwood earlier today, and she was saying that the team has been very frustrated uh, because obviously we've been into lockdown, then we've come out of it. We were 102 days COVID-free uh, and everything was normal, so people were door knocking. We were doing, the Labor Party were doing everything that was in their original plan and then we got struck by that second wave uh, just in the last month or so. So during the lockdown and during the last few weeks, the Labour Field Program has focused their efforts online. So they're doing more and more uh, Zoom uh, recruitment events, strategic briefings. Uh, the digital side of things have really ramped up. So there's been more digital uh, online recruitment and that's been successful by all accounts and a number of uh, new volunteers have come onto the campaign. And just going back to what I said before, back in 2017, I think the same thing is happening yet again. All the work that the organisers did early this year, recruiting and building teams in those targeted areas have helped to manage some of these volunteers who have just started to turn up again. The political parties suspended their campaigns for two to three weeks and most of them resumed, I might have been started last week or the week before. So things are starting to get back to normal. There's no door knocking. So that's been frustrating, um, but they do street corner meetings. I don't know if you do these very often in, in Australia, but what they've done over here is um, they've managed to organize groups of uh, people within a particular neighborhood uh, at a corner of a street to come out and uh, meet their local politicians and to have conversations with them uh, about the Labour Party and about the upcoming election. So that's been, yeah, it's been very tough for them over here. We don't have peer-to-peer -peer texting over here yet either. 
So that's probably one thing that uh, the party would love to have access to. Obviously, that involves a bit of money and a, a whole bunch of extra resources to, mm. to activate. Uh, but one thing they are lucky to have in the lead up to the voting period this year is because of COVID, in the past, the Electoral Commission haven't given the political parties access to daily roll updates on who has and who hasn't voted. So when you think about a turnout strategy, it's way more effective if you actually know who has and who hasn't voted live, preferably, mm. and we just haven't had that data, but this year we will. So the Electoral Commission has given political parties the opportunity to collect that data after every day, and the party have, I think, found a way to do that in a, a productive way. Uh, and that just makes it makes it easier for our field team to go out there and target the right people during the turnout phase of the campaign. So places like South Auckland, they'll know exactly who to talk to at a particular point of the early voting campaign, which runs for two weeks. Because of the outbreak, the second wave outbreak, yes, it happens, um, has um, pushed back the the date of the election because it was due to be ne- not we're taping this one on a Friday it was due to be a week tomorrow um, hence why you're on today's podcast because we were going to preview the election um, and it's been pushed out to a date in uh, October can you remember what date yeah. it is so uh, I think it was the 12th of August uh, we moved to level three or sorry Auckland moved to level three uh, COVID restrictions and level two for the rest of the country. And there were there was a major push, especially by the National Party and some of the opposition uh, parties. And actually, New Zealand First, the coalition partner, were pushing for the election to be delayed at that time. Um, and in hindsight, it was probably the right decision to be made. But it's now been pushed out to the 17th of October with early voting starting on the 3rd of October. Do you think that this new date is going to favour any particular party or is it negated? Yeah, so there's, again, there's been some more polling around that. So it all comes back to when COVID first hit New Zealand, with our Prime Minister being decisive and communicating uh, well and regular, so she's been having these one o'clock daily press conferences uh, when COVID has hit, uh, and so she's been in front of everybody and she's handled it perfectly. And that's made a big difference. And so has the economic response. So Grant Robertson, our Minister of Finance, introduced what we call the wage subsidy, which has helped a number of businesses across the country to stay afloat. And um, obviously, a number of workers around the country have managed to hold on to their jobs in most of the industries, some aviation being one of them, which is a industry that our union covers um, have really struggled. But that work that happened early in the year when COVID first hit, people have actually changed their minds about labour. (laughs) So I think in May there was a Colmar Brunton poll where 92% of people were satisfied with the government's handling of COVID-19. That's in May, so that was just after the, the first lockdown. 92%. That's huge. Uh, And in July, there was a News Hub Read research research poll that asked New Zealanders which party they trust to run the economy from now on uh, through and after COVID-19. 
and a clear majority of 62.3% trusted a Labour-led government under Jacinda Ardern of just over a quarter of the country, I think it was 26.5%, trusted a national-led government under Judith Collins. So that, I mean, what that says is even in the midst of all of the, I mean, at that point in time during May and all the way through to July, there was a huge support. There was huge support for Labour, for Jacinda Ardern and the government for their handling of COVID-19. And when you translate that into the political polls by parties, I already mentioned the poll in February that had it neck and neck. Uh, at the end of our level four, our first lockdown, Labour skyrocketed to its highest um, results, I think at 55% and the National Party plummeted to 29%. And that was, I think that was even before Simon Bridges uh, was rolled as leader of the National Party. Uh, but re the, re the most recent poll was this week, a couple of days ago on the 9th of September, Labour are at 53%, National are at 29%, and the ACT Party have gone up quite a bit to 6.2%, and New Zealand First and the Greens are below that 5% threshold, which is danger territory for both of them. So I guess the wash up there so far is that the electorate continue to yeah, approve of the work that the Labor government's done and uh, questioning the, the opposition. That's great. The union movement, obviously you work for Etu and you just gave them a bit of a plug there before and the work that they do in representing airline workers. Um, just gives a sense of uh, the role that the union movement's playing in electoral politics in, in, in the campaign um, and maybe talk a bit about the work that you guys are doing at Air2. Yeah, cool. So uh, Air2, uh, in New Zealand, we're the only private sector union that's affiliated to the Labour Party. And so Air2 also has a formal relationship with the Green Party and it's built on the realisation that under MMP, no party is ever going to get more than 50% of the vote and more than half of the seats in Parliament. But in saying that, I've just read out to you a, a, a couple of polls there that have Labour over 50%. Uh, but it's never happened before, and if it does, it'll be historic. Uh, but that's the re part, part of the reason why we have a formal relationship with the Green Party, because we know, and it's not sustainable under an MMP environment anyway, to constantly get over 50% of the vote. Uh, so that's So in saying that, we join a number of other affiliated unions here in New Zealand, which include the Maritime Union of New Zealand, the Dairy Workers Union, the uh, Meat Workers Union, and the Rail and Maritime Transport Union. Oh, and also the Central Amalgamated Workers Union. So all of us, all of our unions, through what they call the Labour Affiliates Council, we largely uh, control Labour's employment relations policy. And so we have quite a big say on um, on those policies. So some of the main planks of the affiliates employment relations policy, um, and these are just sort of touching on some of the issues, and I'll talk about this because I think it's important before we then talk about the work that we're doing to campaign around these issues. But uh, number one is to complete the work to establish union negotiated um, with the right to compulsory arbitration of industry or occupational fair pay agreements, similar to the awards over in uh, Australia. Number two is to legislate to outlaw the pass on of union negotiated site-based collective agreements to non-members unless the union agrees. 
Number three is to introduce a minimum of 10 days legislated sick leave for all workers each year. So at the moment, it's five days, five sick days per year here. And during COVID, that's been a major issue for a number of our members because a lot of them, especially in Auckland in the last few weeks, have had to go and get tested and then have had to take a lot of time off work. This next one's interesting, and there was an announcement this week adding uh, Matariki as a public holiday. So Matariki is basically the Māori New Year, and uh, Labour announced this policy earlier this week, and it's going to be New Zealand. It's New Zealand's twelfth public holiday. It's going to be introduced in 2022, and it's the first new public holiday since 1973 when Waitangi Day was added, uh, which was obviously to uh, acknowledge our founding document. And it um, and there's a bit of there's a bit of a story behind that as well. But getting another public holiday and the living wage is important here. That's a big issue for our union and our members. The living wage to be extended to the wider state sector and workers employed by contractors in the wider state sector as well. So Labor just recently announced that uh, our work and income, just like Centrelink over in Australia, the security guards who work there. Um, are now going to be paid a living wage, their contractors, currently contractors. And finally, this is another big one, and my wife is also a film worker, but restoring the right of film and television production workers to negotiate collectively. So that was removed by National under John Key about five years ago to uh, ensure that Warner Brothers got the right, got the rights to produce the, the Hobbit movie in New Zealand. So those are sort of the, the, the key the key issues and work that the affiliated unions do to ensure that um, we get good policies for our for our members. So in terms of what we're doing, um, here too, because we are affiliated to the Labour Party, it makes it easier for us to be outwardly uh, campaigning for them and for the Green Party as well. So we've been doing phone banks and a lot of them have been over Zoom. So we've been um, doing quite a lot of training with our member leaders uh, to have conversations over the phone and in the workplace. We've also developed a, what we call an election workplace conversation form, which people can use on their phones and also in hard copies to have conversations, identifying key issues, which political party they're going to support and whether they're interested to help. I've live Facebook Q and A's with politicians. Uh, the living wage movement here is very organized and strong. So they held an election forum online last week and they got a commitment from each of the political parties to commit to the living wage. Robo polling is, we do quite a bit of robo polling and the results of our robo poll, had, robo poll has showed that about 62% of our membership support the Labour Party and only 16% support National. And I think New Zealand First and the Greens were around 4% each. And um, more importantly, just sharing our member stories, mostly online at the moment. Uh, and getting them getting them out there and prepping for our get out the vote phase, which is coming up at the end of the month. How are you finding the enthusiasm of uh, engaging with your membership and uh, uh, mobilising them to then partake in traditional um, party politics and campaigning? It's been a challenge, um, mainly because a lot of our members have faced uh, their own challenges with with COVID. So there's been a number of, uh, especially like I mentioned aviation before, there's been a number of job losses there. So we've had to be uh, very sensitive about how we approach 
some of our members um, in terms of asking them to be involved in the election campaign. And then being in and out of lockdown has also been frustrating because you know what it's like in a campaign. You build momentum and you're like, great, this is going really good. And then when something like a lockdown comes in, uh, it just, yeah, that momentum sort of gets lost for a few weeks. So we've just started to build back the momentum again, which is good. Hopefully we're not going to get put into another lockdown before before the election. Uh, but yeah, we've just, and, and parties are now announcing policies, which is good, especially the Labour Party. So that's really helped motivate a lot of our members to get more involved on our campaign. Uh, we spoke at the top of the show a bit about the uh, Māori and uh, Pacifica population within New Zealand. Starting with the Māori population, um, I think it's worthwhile explaining to certainly a lot of the Australian listeners about um, Māori politics um, in the mainstream. Um, obviously, there's a Māori party. And give us a sense of the relationship between Labour and that particular community and their sort of voting history. Yeah, Sure. So the Māori Party are currently not in Parliament, but they were born out of the, in 2004, the Labour Party at the time, and they were in government, uh, passed the law which deemed the foreshore and seabed to be held by the Crown, despite Māori claiming that they were the rightful owners. And so Labour MP at the time, uh, Tariana Tūria crossed the floor of the House and that's how the Māori Party were born. She created the Māori Party. And by 2008, the Māori Party had won five of the seven Māori seats. And I'll talk about the Māori seat shortly. And they went into coalition with, nat with National. Now, normally Māori overwhelmingly support Labour. <clears throat> so when the Māori Party sided with National, that was a bit of a surprise for, for a lot of Māori around the country. But at the same time, because of the foreshore and seabed debacle, there were a lot of pissed off Māori out there um, after all of that, pissed off with Labour. Just going back to the Māori seats. So here, like I mentioned this earlier, you've got two votes. Party vote's the most important. The electorate vote is to choose to, to vote for your local representative. There are seven Māori seats <clears throat> in uh, New Zealand at the moment and uh, you can enrol onto the Māori roll if you are of Māori descent. And the Māori electorates, the Māori seats were introduced in 1867, and they were created in order to give Māori a more direct say in Parliament as, the, as a treaty partner. And it started with four Māori seats, and obviously because of population growth, um, there are now seven across the country. Currently, the Labour Party hold all seven Māori seats, but it hasn't always been like that. And what normally happens in terms of Māori politics is that those Māori seats uh, become, um, and it actually you know, it decided the election uh, a couple of elections ago, which I mentioned earlier when the Māori Party came in and sided with National. Uh, but they they tend to they tend to switch when there is a very big Māori issue at the time. So I used uh, an example of 2004 about the foreshore and seabed issue. A lot of those seats went to the Māori Party. At the moment, there are a number of, there's always a number of bubbling issues that are happening um, in the Māori world. But at the moment, uh, Māori at this stage seem to be in support of the Labour Party and it doesn't seem to 
look like there's going to be much of a change there in saying that Labour now has 13 Māori MPs in their caucus, which is a record, record number of Māori MPs. Uh, and Labour's 10 most popular electorates in 2017 when it came to party votes were the seven Māori seats. And below those seven Māori seats were the three electorates with the highest Pacific populations in the country, which were the three electorates in South Auckland, Manukau East, Manurewa, and Mangere. What's so shows you, you know, the, the the importance of those seats electorally? Yeah. The um, describe the politics of the Pacific voting population in New Zealand. I mean, who who is it made up of? And without you know generalising, um, where you know what 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 are the things that are most important to them when it comes to who they're going to vote for? Yeah. So I think um, like I just talked about the Maori the Maori vote. But the Pacifica voters are probably stronger in support of the Labour Party um, than any other demographic in, in New Zealand. <clears throat> they tend to um, mostly live in um, South Auckland. That's where the majority of the population is. And there are other pockets outside of there around the country. Uh, a lot of them are uh, supportive of Labour because uh, many of them are working class. Many of them are working class. And, but at the same time, they're quite conservative, socially conservative. And so when it comes to issues such as abortion, uh, such as euthanasia, um, that sometimes, yeah, there's sometimes a bit of a tension between uh, what they believe in, you know, themselves in terms of the culture. It's the same with Māori too. <clears throat> and then also with the values of the Labour Party. But otherwise, Pacifica have been, uh, the Pacifica uh, voters in New Zealand have always traditionally been strong Labour supporters, and a lot of our volunteers are of Pacific descent as well, especially in our union of Air 2. Uh, we have a very strong um, committee, Pacifica, who um, have been brilliant this year, in fact, <clears throat> and they've been doing a number of phone calls and having conversations with fellow uh, Pacifica members within the union. And the same can be said for the Māori committee in our union as well. They've been very organised, having making sure that Māori are having conversations with Māori and Pacifica are having conversations with Pacifica. You spoke about that tension that exists between um, the socially conservative values of those communities and that of the Labour Party. How, have you, how has the party managed that tension over the years? Yeah, it's been a tricky one. Uh, because those particular issues, when it comes to a vote in Parliament, they're conscious uh, votes. So the individual MPs, especially in those electorates in South Auckland, especially in those Māori seats, they are constantly lobbied by their um, by their constituencies. But um, in terms of the party and how they manage that, well, they leave it up to them. They leave it up to the Pacific uh, Caucus and the Māori Caucus um, to ensure that they manage that because they know their their own people um, better than anyone. But it hasn't necessarily got in the way too much. I think a lot of the time they do realise it is a conscious vote and um, it's not necessarily a um, an attack on them. Like there is a, I think there's an acceptance that there are going to be those issues that come up every now and then and they will be contentious. And with the, referen the two referendums coming up this year, 
around the legalization of cannabis and euthanasia. Um, it's up to the it's up to the voters themselves to um, to let the government know what they think. Uh, nice segue into what actually what was my next question. What last sort of political question before we move on to uh, other matters of the heart. Um, the, yes, you mentioned the two the two referendums on the ballot this year. Uh, one on the legalization of cannabis, and the second on um, euthanasia. Or, are you guys calling it euthanasia or voluntary assisted dying? What is actually the the terminology that you've adopted there? Well, we call it. I think the the question on it is whether they it's we've got a bill end of life choice act 2019 we're calling it the end of life bill right um going into these two referendums uh, i'm assuming that i think i read something a while back this is like maybe last year actually in fact i think i was heading over to japan to watch the rugby world cup i read an article about certainly the referendum on uh, the legalization of cannabis uh, at that time it seemed like the majority of the population in new zealand would vote in favor of legalizing uh, cannabis. Where are we now with you know, um, you know a month to go until Kiwis go and vote on these on this particular issue? Yeah, well, that was a very long time ago now because the latest poll at the end of August had the yes vote at forty nine point five percent and the no vote at forty nine point five percent. So it's fair to say it's neck and neck. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it is fair to say, yes. That, you can't get much more neck and neck than that. What's so, happened? Why has that changed? Why has it been a change? So, okay, so here are the dynamics. So the Green Party and the ACT Party are supportive of uh, cannabis becoming uh, being legalised. The National Party have just decided that their whole caucus is against it. So they're, they're running a bit of a campaign against um, legalisation. Labour have decided not to have a formal position, uh, but in saying that Justice Minister Andrew Little personally supports it. And New Zealand First have no position because they are kings of referendums. And I think they were, yeah, I think part of the the coalition uh, negotiations, this was right near the top of the list to make sure that this went to a referendum and this wasn't going to be passed through the House. So uh, New Zealand First have kind of done a Pontius Pilate, washed their hands of it and said, we're not touching that, we'll just hand it to the people. Yep, pretty much. Right, a bit like the Conservatives with Brexit. Um, So... Who is, uh, is there a campaign on the ground that's brought that back to being 50-50? Yeah, so that's been another issue. The Drug Foundation over here in New Zealand are running a campaign. Uh, Helen Clark has set up a foundation and the Helen Clark Foundation is running a campaign as well. But outside of that, I think some of the student associations are running campaigns on campuses. But outside of that, there isn't anything else out there so uh, Chloe Swarbrick, who is a Green Party MP running in the seat of Auckland Central, which is going to be a hotly contested seat, keep an eye on that one. Uh, it could actually come down to the survival of the Green Party or not uh, come election night. But she's been very good. She's been the, the face of the cannabis uh, yes vote campaign. But um, yeah, in, in terms of the no vote, you can only imagine this. Uh, groups like Family First New Zealand, a lot of the conservative groups out there who are running campaigns against it. So that's, yeah. So I, I don't know. I personally think that um, there probably could be more of an organised campaign for legalisation out there. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Quickly turning to uh, some other important matters. Uh, the, the, uh, there was an announcement today from um, Sansa that the uh, rugby championship uh, will now go ahead. I think actually you've had a better chance to read the announcement um, than um, I have. It sort of came out just as we were getting ready to go to air. Um, but 
for those of you who want to stay on the podcast, Michael Cooney, you're one of them, um, to talk about rugby. Uh, it looked like it was all up in the air. Obviously, we are now in September and traditionally the, um, the rugby championship between Australia and New Zealand, South Africa um, and uh, the Pumas would be over or certainly wrapping up. I think maybe that last butter's load might be around about now, but um, because of COVID, obviously that's all been pushed back. Um, but it looks like we are going to see some test rugby this year, but by the sounds of it, it's going to be in a bubble over here in uh, Australia. How, you, how, how you feel? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if you saw the uh, last weekend's North versus South game here in uh, New Zealand with our best players on the park, but uh, you should be worried because there's a whole bunch of new young and exciting players <laughs> coming out of the woodwork here in Aotearoa. Uh, and in saying that, how long has it been? The 2003, I think, was the last time the Aussies have won the Bledisloe Cup. So they'll be, I'm sure you guys will be uh, waiting to get out on the park to ensure that that streak does not continue any longer. <laughs> you've, uh, you've really hit a, 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 a very comfortable uh, tone of voice there, Anaru. I feel like you do a rugby podcast in, in, your, in, your, in your spare time there, um, which I'll get you a chance to plug in a moment. Mate, I'm always living in fear. I've been living in fear of New Zealand rugby since I was a child. Like, you know, let's, um, apart from the, the golden years of Australian rugby from 1999 to about 2003, um, and ever since then, it's been the dark ages and continues to get darker, although there are sometimes some bright glimmers. But to be honest with you right now, I'd just be happy to watch rugby. Yep, that's right. And you've got, I think you've got Super Rugby still going over there, huh? Um, my Melbourne Rebels have finally after I don't know how many years of trying, have actually made the the postseason um, after a, an enthralling encounter where we got we needed four we needed to beat the, the force by four points, and we managed to do that with literally seconds ticking on the clock. Um, so we're up against the Reds on Saturday night, seven fifteen. Get around it. Um, I, although I don't know how the hell that's going to go. The other conversation that's been going on about is about Super Rugby. Yep. Um, and what happens? We, this perennial argument about the the South Africans threatening to leave and going and playing in the north. Um, Australians constantly trying to put up too many teams. That I, we just do not have the, the amount of players to sustain five teams in Super Rugby. And I know that. I'm glad you're admitting that because that you don't hear that very often. From oh, the you've got to be blind, Freddie, to think that that's that, that we can that we just clearly can't do that. Like, I mean, just look back to when Super Rugby, or sorry, look back to when rugby was as at, at its strongest point in Australia was when we had three provincial teams playing in the old, I think it was Super 12s or whatever it was then, Brumbies, Waratahs, and the Reds. Now, I know that by knocking off both the Rebels and the Force, you're getting rid of my home team, but I just don't know if we can sustain that. Like, just watching this most recent round of rugby, the Western Force were, you know, they had a crack, but they they were knackered. You know, the, these guys are half of them are part timers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's been this, um, there has been this disagreement, argument, discussion around whether New Zealand rugby teams up with Australia and just has a Trans Tasman competition, or whether we ditch them and do our own one and invite the Pacific Islands into the competition or not. So that's yeah. So that's that. That's where that. And what are your where, what are your thoughts on that? I think we should ditch the Aussies, bugger them. We'll just we'll just have our own comp, and then we'll invite a um maybe a Pacific Island team, and 
maybe two Pacific Island teams, keep the current five or seven team competition. Maybe Aussie can team up with Japan. Maybe we invite Japan in. Maybe- <laughs> All right, now you pull the piss. <laughs> what? No, to be honest, you, you need a trans I think a trans Tasman comp will be good as long as the number of Aussie teams are reduced and inviting in a Pacific uh, team at the same time. I think that'll still still be a really really good and exciting competition. The, the it is interesting that because the I guess there is both Australia and. The Wallabies and New Zealand do, in terms of sourcing up-and-coming players, do feed off a bit of that Pacifica community. Um, I'm not saying they're going into you know those into, into Tonga and Samoa and Fiji and actually physically stealing players and chucking a, a black jersey on or a, or a uh, Australian gold jersey on them. Um, it's certainly people who have migrated to those particular countries. Um, but do you think that the, the, a conglomerate of the of those of those islands or those island nations could put together a strong side to compete in a a sort of a super rugby environment? Yeah. Well, I think if they do it, it would be interesting to see what some of the Pacific players in New Zealand and Australia uh, would do. I mean, they may actually be quite keen to sign with a Pacific Island team. Mm. Uh, So that would be interesting. And that would be a bloody strong team. If they did, I'd be quite nervous (laughs) as a hurricane supporter. The other thing I find interesting is that there are different rules in New Zealand and in Australia about who can play in both your super rugby team and also who can get contracts to play for your national side in in tests. Um, And I think there's some inconsistencies there that should be cleaned up. I like the idea of certainly at at a super rugby level that you can play wherever you like. You just get contracted to play for a club. A bit like in the NBA or, or even in football in Europe. What yep. are your thoughts on that? Like a draft, like having a draft type thing, or, or both. So um, ha- having a having a draft system in which all the teams that are playing in Super Rugby can can draft from one particular draft. So all the young kids coming up through playing rugby in Australia and New Zealand enter into one single draft. Yeah, I think that's a bloody great idea. We have. Um, on both countries, we have some outstanding young talent coming through the ranks and spreading the talent across all the different teams is a no-brainer. Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I, don't no-brainer. Know, I don't know why we've not done that. It's going to help. I mean, I don't think New Zealand rugby needs any more assistance, but certainly it would help anyway for a young Australian kid who so for some reason cannot break into uh, the Waratahs or the Reds or whatever, but the Hurricanes decide to pick him up in the draft. The opportunities provided to him, you know, far outweigh any downside to breaking this, uh, you know, this trans this trans Tasman uh, trade barrier that exists right now. Yeah, the Americans do it perfectly. I like the the way they do it in terms of the young talent that come through and making sure that they distribute the talent all across the the league. So I'm all for it. Yeah, and we like first fifteen rugby here is massive. It's screened on Sky Sport every weekend. And um, a lot of these kids, yeah, they're, they're bloody good and they get straight into the All Blacks, some of them, not long out of school. So, mm. yeah, let's see more of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you do – I'm going to give you a chance here to give your uh, – you've got a bunch of podcasts that you should plug um, now. So, uh, um, you've got – you certainly got – there's a rugby podcast that I think you do. Yep. Re- so, we um, pick up the pace podcast if you want to listen in to – interviews that we have with some pretty big names in rugby and rugby league. We, we do a bit of rugby league as well. 
And the second podcast that I do is um, around this type of work and it's with a colleague of mine who's a union educator. Her name is Yana Part. She's Samoan. And so it's called Wave Makers Podcast and we interview a number of Māori and Pacifica uh, social justice warriors, community leaders, politicians, um, especially in the lead up to the election. Um, all, and available on um, Apple Podcast and all of your favourite. Yeah, on all, all of the platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcast, you name it. Um, how hard is it to come up with a name for a podcast? Oh, God. Uh, Pick Up The Pace Podcast. That's a good we name. We came up with that name when we were over in Japan for the Rugby World Cup last year in a sushi bar at, and we must have had about seven or eight sakes by then and it just came to us. Nothing was coming at all and it just sometimes it just comes to you. Yeah. Uh, I, I still don't know if I've, if I've nailed it. It was socially democratic, but um, it, in the end it was the best of a very, very bad lot of names that I had for for a uh, sort of an Australian slash international centre-left political campaign podcast. But anyway, here we are. Anaru, thank you very much for taking your time out to come on the show today. Um, we've, we've been, you and I have been talking about doing this podcast for a, uh, a while now, um, and I'm so glad you have uh, came on and uh, talked, really nerded out, I guess, on uh, field organising. Um, I know that the election's next month. I would love to get you back on again in the week leading up to it. We didn't sort of go into the details of seats to watch and all that kind of stuff. But if you do have the time and the inclination um, to come back on again, maybe the next uh, in the next episode in the in the week leading into um, the election uh, Saturday, that we can actually do a bit of a breakdown of the seats to watch for everyone that's um, got an interest in uh, watching Jacinda and, and Labor be returned in a majority <laughs> standalone government. Yeah, that'll be new for us over here. But hey, thanks heaps for having me, Stephen, and looking forward to speaking to you again soon.